and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, January 7th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Morning. So welcome back, everyone. As of this taping, we seem to still have an operational federal government. Obviously, lots has happened since we last met, but we're going to stay in our own lane and concentrate on the health news. So while Trump insurrectionists were storming the Capitol, John Ossoff was being declared the winner of the last remaining Senate seat in Georgia following the projected win of the Reverend Raphael Warnock. That means that when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are sworn in on January 20th, Democrats will technically be in the majority in the Senate for the first time since 2015. This obviously changes a lot of possibilities for the health agenda. What are some of them? I think the biggest first change is that it's going to be a lot easier for President-elect Biden's HHS secretary-designate Javier Becerra to get confirmed. Democrats only need, you know, a simple majority to confirm their nominees, but this means that it will be a lot easier for them to even get hearings and to put Javier Becerra on the Senate floor for a vote. The roadblocks to his confirmation are a lot fewer at this point now. Policy-wise, obviously both chambers are working with a very slim majority here, slimmer than what Republicans had when they tried to repeal and replace Affordable Care Act a couple of years ago. So policy-wise, I think we're still working with a pretty narrow policy agenda here. But they do have, you know, the ability to put votes on the floor and put bills on the floor to vote on their policy priorities and can make, you know, life difficult for some of the vulnerable Republicans who might be more moderate. And they'll chair hearings. Yes, that too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Chair of the committees, Alice. It isn't just uh, Becerra who will now have an easier glide path to confirmation. There's a lot of other uh, cabinet members and sub-cabinet members who have a big role in healthcare who could have faced either opposition or delays to getting confirmed. I'm thinking about Neera Tandon at the Office of Management and Budget. I'm thinking of Vivek Murthy, whose confirmation back during the Obama administration was very rocky to be Surgeon General again. And so I think that that is huge. And now there's going to be a push to have those people go through committee and get votes before the inauguration so that they are ready to go, given the pandemic and the urgency of getting everything up and running. Although the the Senate is out until the inauguration, right? I said there's a push. There's people who (laughs) want that to happen. (laughs) And and there's a precedent for it. Um, You know, in the past, uh, people have gotten votes on confirmation before the inauguration and so they're ready to go. So I think there's going to be a tussle over that. Obviously, what happened yesterday impacts things. And there are now, you know, concerns about security at the inauguration itself, etc. But agree with Mel on policy. Um, I think that there's going to be an overwhelming focus on COVID and efforts to tuck as much into those relief bills as possible. Um, I think there is going to be an effort to revisit drug prices just because there is bipartisan interest, at least in it, and some, you know, bipartisan bills in the past. And I think there will be an interest because those policies would save the government a lot of money, which they could then use to pay for other initiatives like making Obamacare subsidies more generous, etc. So I think that 
COVID will eat up a lot of the attention and time. But I think that the Democrats have been saying for years that they are the party to trust on health care. And if they were given power in Washington, they would do all these things on health care. So there will be a lot of pressure for them to deliver now. And, and I think, you know, I agree with everything Mel and Alice said and just want to make clear that whether we're looking at the Affordable Care Act or drug pricing, it is going to be around the edges just because there's a Democratic majority does not mean we're going to suddenly see Medicare drug price negotiation or um, even a wide sweeping public option, um, things like that, that are part of Joe Biden's agenda, but, uh, you know, are going to need more than 50 in the Senate to to get by. So I think we'll see things um, on the drug pricing front, particularly that are looking at the Medicare benefits, B and D, trying to bring down costs for seniors there, but no major reworking of the commercial market where people are suddenly going to see their drug prices drop or anything like that. Yeah, any, anything that's going to get through is going to have to get the approval of Joe Manchin, who's the 50th Democrat, um, or they're going to have to, you know, drag over Susan Collin, which is possible, but not that easy. She's been the last person on a lot of bills, and she drives a hard bargain. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me with this, and I will say, I think I said this before, I did not expect the Democrats to, to win these two seats in Georgia. That was, you know, I think a big surprise to a lot of people. But this will be the first time since the Affordable Care Act passed that the Democrats will have had control of both houses in Congress and will be able to actually tinker and do technical corrections to the ACA that they were never allowed to do. We had an entire Supreme Court case in 2015 that was basically based on a typo in the law that the Republicans wouldn't let them fix. And I would think that that would be one of the early orders of business. Obviously, Alice, I agree with you, COVID is going to be, you know, first, second and third but they can use budget reconciliation where they only need a majority of votes to do things like mooting the Supreme Court case um, because they could add back uh, a small penalty and that would make the current Supreme Court case uh, moot. And they could fix other things in the law that haven't worked right. This is the biggest health law Congress has ever passed that they've not been able to go back and make technical or other kinds of corrections. And I think people have like not really been talking about that. Do you guys see that, you know, likely to happen? And obviously, people are talking about budget reconciliation like they can do that in February. In order to do budget reconciliation, you need a budget. Budget needs to go through both houses. It's not a fast thing, but I would think that that would be something that they will try to do in 2021. I agree. You started to see people yesterday morning talking about budget reconciliation. Reporters were asking, you know, Senator Ron Wyden, poised to be the Finance Committee chairman, he will have a big role in this, presumably, about reconciliation. That's definitely something that is on the table. You're right. That does require a budget resolution. This is something that in past years, Congress has not particularly been good at. They have not yet passed a budget resolution for the current fiscal year, meaning that technically they can have two budget resolutions to go in the calendar year 2021, which puts them in the same position actually that Republicans were in in 2017. They passed a budget resolution that didn't really have anything in it to get the Obamacare repeal process started. That's one option Democrats would have. I have no reporting to back this up. I'm not sure if that is something they would do, but budget resolutions can get dicey. That's when you might see, you know, progressives pushing to include policies like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, um, that moderates might not want in a budget resolution. So yeah, talking about budget reconciliation, that's definitely something that fixes to the ACA, building on the ACA, the size of subsidies, some of the bills that House Democrats passed in the last Congress. 
is something on the table, but you're right. It'll be a probably a lengthier process. All right. Well, let's do talk about COVID. Um, before Wednesday, the biggest national story of the week was the less than stellar rollout of COVID vaccines. Trump health officials promised 20 million doses would be given by the end of the year. We're now a week into the new year and the number is a little more than 5 million. We're hearing reports on the one hand about health workers who are eligible for the first tranche of the vaccine to be declining them and people who are not eligible getting them at a pharmacy here in the D.C. area. Some lucky bystanders got shots because apparently the people they were meant for didn't show and the pharmacist didn't want the doses to go to waste, so he offered them to people standing around. What happened to this? I mean, there was so much effort during the later half of the year as we knew that the vaccines were getting close to approval on how we were going to do this distribution. There was so much assurance that this had all been worked out, and apparently it just hasn't. Well, I think the effort was actually in the sense of getting these vaccines manufactured, getting them to the federal government. And from there, it falls apart because there needed to be a lot more money to states um, and there needed to be a lot more coordination with what was going to happen. States didn't even know up to a day or two before how many doses they were getting um, accurately. They were not being given accurate numbers. There wasn't a a plan on how to get these out there efficiently, um, you know, this isn't something that hospitals have done, even though they are healthcare institutions. There just was no coordination anywhere on any of this. And we're seeing that play out right now. Um, and on top of that, there hasn't been a, a big messaging campaign. You've seen in, in news reports, you know, and reporters asking questions of top health officials, them saying, oh, yes, like people should get the vaccine. Um, it's totally safe. But where is the huge messaging campaign um, convincing people that this is something that they should do and that it is safe? I haven't I haven't seen that. And I think that that's playing out as well. And, and even healthcare workers are questioning, you know, I'm hearing things like, should I get this? Does it alter my DNA? I'm still hearing things like that, that you would think at least with the first tranche of people with the healthcare workers who know the science, have some idea of the vocabulary would be past that at this point. I, although I keep hearing anecdotes about healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers who, you know, their hospitals have had signups for appointments and they haven't been able to sign up because they're taking care of COVID patients. And by the time they get a chance to go get on a computer, all the slots have been taken up. So it seems like, you know, there are health workers getting the vaccine, but not necessarily the health workers who most need it. And there are anecdotes about hospital CEOs getting it who work from home or work in their safe office and don't go anywhere near patients. And so there's a lot of frustration and feelings that the process is not playing out in like a fair and equitable way. On the other hand, there are concerns that if there is too much emphasis on prioritization, we heard this from HHS Secretary Azar and uh, Surgeon General Jerona Adams yesterday, if verification for who should be first in line is too onerous, that could slow things down even further. We're already behind. Um, So a lot of this is due to the fact that Congress didn't approve money for states to vaccinate people until just recently. And states have been begging for this for months. And you can't just create a a huge national vaccination campaign on the fly. They needed this money months ago. They're now trying to build the plane as they're flying it. And there's anxiety about these doses spoiling outside the freezer. And so there's an effort to just give it to whoever they can, as Julie mentioned, has been happening in D.C. Yeah, there's a real tension right now between speed 
and fairness. And yet we have, you know, in Florida, because there's no national strategy and the CDC's guidelines are that just that guidelines, they're trying to make the vaccine available not just to healthcare workers and those in nursing homes, but to everybody over age 65, except there's not enough for everybody over age 65 yet. So we get pictures of people with walkers in and wheelchairs waiting outside in lines overnight, only to be turned away because supplies have run out. I mean, this is truly Darwinian. I mean, are are we really going to give these vaccines out based on survival of the fittest? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest concerns when you hear the health officials, um, you know, Surgeon General Jerome Adams kind of talked about this yesterday saying, if you've got extra vaccine, just give it to whoever you can, get it out there. Um, If that becomes the strategy, you do go into this other potential for chaos where do you want people during a very contagious pandemic standing in line for hours, particularly the most vulnerable people that you're trying to reach? That's the flip side of this coin. So obviously some coordination and some planning would have really helped. And that gets back to the equity and fairness issue, because who has the means to take off work and stand in line? Who has the means to wander from pharmacy to pharmacy, seeing who has extras? Who has the means to refresh one of these online portals over and over and over until they get a slot? A lot of elderly people have difficulty with technology. What if someone's homeless and doesn't have a phone, doesn't have a computer? Not just homeless, but low income, etc. And so there's a lot of problems. It's just a continuation of what we've seen throughout the pandemic where states are basically left to their own devices to come up with how to do this with sort of loose federal guidelines. And we're seeing the impact of that. Now, Biden has said he is going to do a lot of things to address this situation. He said he's going to set up these federal vaccination sites. He said he's going to provide a lot stronger guidance. He said he's going to, you know, use the Defense Production Act to manufacture all of the materials needed for vaccinations. And so we're not in a shortage rationing situation that we're in now. We'll see how quickly those things can happen. Alice, you're our our National Guard correspondent. There's been a lot of calls for using the National Guard or even the military to deliver some of these vaccines. Is there some impediment to that or could they do that? Oh, that's already happening in some states. Yeah. The National Guard has been involved in most states for most of the pandemic, doing testing and helping to deliver supplies to hospitals. And so they are also part of the vaccination effort now. Of course, they don't want the vaccination campaign to, you know, look too militarized because that also makes people, you know, very nervous and distrustful. But they are providing a support role in a lot of places. All right. Well, in other news this week, we got the announcement that the three companies who were going to disrupt healthcare, J.P. Morgan Chase, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway, are dissolving their joint company, Haven Healthcare. Now, to be fair, the writing has been on the wall. Atul Gawande, the surgeon, writer, health wonk who was hired to run the company back in 2018, left the helm last spring. But there was so much chatter about this effort when it was launched in 2018, including on this very podcast. Um, I thought we should at least address the fact that it's going away. Why couldn't, I mean, if these three companies who, you know, kind of national leaders couldn't disrupt healthcare, can anybody? I think that was the question in the very beginning when this happened was like, yes, these are three big, smart companies, but no one else has done it. Why could they be the ones to do it? What made them so special? I think 
we're seeing things maybe individually from Amazon, like getting into pharmacy, um, things like that. But I don't know if anyone, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys did, but I don't know if anyone expected them to have some plan that suddenly was novel and healthcare would be fixed by now. Well, even Atul himself, who was at Aspen just shortly after this was launched, was sort of dampening expectations, saying that, you know, what he was hoping to do was find a way to fix healthcare for these employers and that perhaps that could be scalable for other employers. I think a lot of people saw this and assumed that they were going to try to sort of fix healthcare writ large. I mean, he had sort of smaller expectations, but even those apparently couldn't be met. Yeah, it is striking how they really didn't present anything at all. After all of the hype and rhetoric, not really even coming forward with anything before the collapse. Um, you know, it, it all goes back to who knew healthcare could be so complicated. I saw that a lot when, when the news broke. And, and Gawande is a great writer and I assume a good surgeon, but why would he make a good CEO? That from the beginning was an interesting He question. does run a think tank. I've actually been to his think tank, Ariadne, which is there in Boston across from Harvard Medical School. So It's I mean, still he very is- different from like running a company, but yeah, that could be a qualification. Well, my, my theory at the time is that he was he's already wearing so many hats. I mean, Ariadne's not that small. There are a lot of people there um, doing a lot of stuff, a lot of interesting stuff. Plus, he the surgeon, he operates, plus he writes for The New Yorker. So he, I mean, he was already, and I suspect that's why he left after the pandemic broke out. He was already spread pretty thin, and it was just sort of one too many things for, for him to be doing. And now he's advising Biden. Yes, he's one, one of the people on the, on the COVID task force. Right. That too. I think this also underscores sort of probably the need for the federal government to be involved in the big changes to fix health care. Um, you know, I think companies can do things to tinker around the edges and try to, you know, push change individually. But if you're if we're going to see, you know, significant change, I do think that governments need to be involved in that and that without sort of having government in some way as a partner, you know, this group, I never really heard of these people, you know, testifying on Capitol Hill, talking about their ideas. That's not really something that they ever pushed to make happen. I don't think that was their goal to make happen. But yeah, I think that you do need to kind of have that government partner as well. And that, yeah, it's true. They, I mean, they were super secretive kind of the mm-hmm. whole time. And and now I guess they're going to each each company is going to go off and try to disrupt healthcare on its own. So while we were gone, there was also quite a bit of news that I wanted to at least touch on because mostly pertains to things that we have talked about. First, a federal district court judge in Maryland blocked the so-called most favored nation drug rule, which would have tied the price of some drugs in Medicare to the lowest price in countries that have, you know, price controls. The judge ruled that the Trump administration did not properly follow the Administrative Procedure Act, which has gotten a lot of Trump regulations blocked or struck down. My question, though, is this the end of this or might the Biden administration try to resurrect it in some form? I haven't heard whether the Biden administration would try to. So this is just my take on it is why would you at this point? I think if they wanted to do something like it, I guess they could be more thoughtful about it and resurrect it that way. But, you know, they have a chance at doing something on drug pricing through Congress, potentially, which would be more airtight here. I just would see them going that way rather than trying to deal with this this thing that was left to them. What Biden has talked about is some form of negotiating drug prices legislation um, that would do that. And so that's more of the direction they're going to explore rather than this workaround where we uh, piggyback on other countries negotiating drug prices and try to coast on on that, which, as we've seen, has has uh, legal challenges as well. 
Yeah, I was going to say, even if they fix the Administrative Procedure Act problem, I wonder if a judge would uphold this based on, does the administration even have authority to do this? It seems it seems unlikely that they could do this without Congress. Well, also in the news over the holidays, the Justice Department is suing Walmart for failing to stop hundreds of thousands of improper opioid prescriptions. Walmart says the Justice Department is trying to force it into a large settlement, but Walmart has also been sued by several states who charge that it fills scripts from doctors who are known to write excessive opioid prescriptions and fill prescriptions for large amounts of pills and ignored other red flags of abuse. This all seems kind of late in the day. Or again, is this something that the Justice Department under President Biden is likely to continue? I think that, as you mentioned, there are a lot of states that have already gone after Walmart as well. And the the federal government doing the same gives them some heft. And I think that that's probably a reason for the Biden administration to continue. And, you know, opioids are still a problem. We've had a huge number of deaths during the pandemic. This is not going away. I think people thought for a little while maybe things were leveling off and um, this was no longer a crisis, but um, it was still an epidemic. And, you know, Purdue, the maker of OxyContin, has had its day in court. Um, and I think there is a desire for more bigger names as well. We're not done with the opioid issue. It feels like it's gotten so pushed to the back burner by everything else. But I mean, because it was it was kind of the number one health issue there for a good year and a half or two. I think I think we'll see it kind of come back this upcoming year. Um, you know, the Purdue family had members that were testifying before Congress last, late last year, signaling that this is something that lawmakers are still keeping an eye on. As Anna said, you know, there's a lot of data that suggests that opioid use might have started to tick back up after some hopes that it was declining as people are in quarantine and isolating during the pandemic. So I think that sort of as hopefully we start to sort of move out in the coming months of this stretch of the pandemic, I think this is something that will continue along with a lot of other mental health and substance abuse issues to get a closer look sort of maybe the second half of this upcoming year. Alice, you're going to say something. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just one of several issues where the pandemic took attention away from other health crises, but it also made all of those other health crises worse. I think we're still trying to put out the fire. We had record COVID deaths yesterday. That obviously is is the top priority and the top focus of the government. But it, all of these other things will have to um, get attention. So finally, uh, while we were gone, uh, as of January 1st, the Trump administration's rules requiring hospitals to publish their negotiated prices with insurers took effect. Now, this is just hospitals. The transparency requirements for insurers aren't supposed to take effect until next year. And the ones for uh, drugs were blocked by a federal judge. Uh, How much difference might these rules make? They're still not going to be terribly user-friendly for people who want to figure out which hospital they want to go to or how much they might pay. A couple things. This was never going to be a big fix. This was pitched as, oh, we're going to shame hospitals into disclosing their prices and people will see how high they are and be able to comparison shop and be able to put pressure on the hospitals to bring the prices down. One, many hospitals have been disclosing them in places that are not easy for the average person to even find, let alone read and understand. Putting out just the top line price is not useful to the average person because you have no idea what you actually pay with what insurance or even with no insurance. So really, people are not able to use this data in in a useful way right now. There are also ongoing legal challenges to this. And so um, I kind of put it mentally in the same category as the drug price effort, the most favored nations, in that 
it sounds good in theory. It's not really helping people, and there are legal problems. And there, are, and I would think there are resource problems too. I mean, do you do you want to spend your, you know, well, while obviously COVID is number one, do you want to spend the rest of your precious resources on something like this, or do you want to sort of move forward with something else? So, so, so transparency will continue to be an issue, and we will see how it all uh, plays out. All right. Well, that is as much news as we have for this week. Uh, Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Mel, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, so my story um, ran in Bloomberg. Um, The world's most loathed industry gave us a vaccine in record time by Drew Armstrong. I thought this story was really interesting, um, sort of, high level picture of Operation Warp Speed and sort of how, you know, we got these vaccines so much more quickly than a year ago anyone thought we would, but also raised some interesting questions. One, quite literally in the story, you know, why didn't we have an Operation Warp Speed for other areas of the pandemic, testing the public health precautions to try to get people to wear masks and social distance? Those are very fair questions. Another sort of question that I took from it, um, especially from the top of the story, heading into this upcoming year as we get a new Congress and a new president is, how does this vaccine effort change the public reputation of the pharmaceutical industry? And how does that affect public officials' efforts to rein in drug prices? Um, Something that Democrats have, you know, long been saying is a priority. The pharmaceutical industry, as we've all talked about, is a powerful force in Washington. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if and how this vaccine development changes their efforts um, to influence lawmakers in the coming months. That's a good story. Anna. Mine is in Stat News, and Jason Oakman, who's an editor there, um, interviewed Helen Branswell, who's been the pandemic reporter, I think, for everybody. It's uh, how it started, a Q&A with Helen Branswell one year after COVID-19 became a full-time job. And I just thought it was really interesting. Um, you know, I was I was on maternity leave when a lot of this started unfolding. So I wasn't paying super close attention and to go back and see what she was watching and who she was talking to. And when she became frightened that this was a pandemic was a fascinating read. And also to get her take on what we're looking at in the future. Yeah, there's a, a lot of I told you so going on. Um, Alice. Yeah, so I picked a piece by my colleagues David Lim and Sarah Ferris uh, about um, new information that the test that members of Congress have been using, the COVID test that they've been using um, for months, uh, the FDA warned recently that it may be faulty and especially could give false negative results. And I thought about this a lot today and yesterday because we saw members of Congress herded into safe rooms in the basement and be all packed together. And there were reports that some members of Congress were not wearing masks in those safe rooms when they were packed together. And that this not only was a terrifying, you know, national security breach, that it could become another super spreader event. We've already had a bunch of members of Congress test positive, including recently. There have been concern about members gathering on the floor during votes. This could be a lot worse. And the test that they're using to determine whether or not they need to quarantine 
may be faulty. So yet another thing we all have to worry about. And and obviously the the vast majority of people who, you know, broke their way into the Capitol yesterday were also not wearing masks. Correct. So, I mean, numbers would suggest at least some of those people were spreading uh, germs around as well. Um, all right. Well, my story is from the New York Times and it's called One Hospital System Sued 2,500 Patients After the Pandemic Hit. It's the latest in hospital billing chutzpah chronicled by my colleagues here at KHN, by Sarah Cliff at the New York Times, and here by Brian Rosenthal. In this case, the hospital is Northwell Health, a giant system based in Long Island. According to the story, the hospital sued teachers, construction workers, grocery store employees, and people who had lost their jobs because of the pandemic or become ill with COVID themselves. I highlight this story partly because it was good work and partly because just hours after it was published, Northwell announced it would join just about every other health system in the state and stop suing patients, at least until the end of the pandemic. So keep reaching out to journalists, people who are getting persecuted by healthcare providers. We are here for you. All right, that is the show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Anna? At Anna Edme. Alice? At Alice Holstein. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.